Get tapped to become a godparent in Greece, and the honor comes with expectations that you'll play an important role in the family. You know, you take on the role of things like Christmas and Easter and name days, that being there for their school parties and school presentations and award ceremonies and swim meets and all that kind of thing. Coming up in the hour ahead, we look at what it takes to be a Greek godmother. Lydia Bastianich tells us how growing up in an Italian community in Istria, in today's Croatia, means you're Italian with a twist. So I can't help talking about being Italian, cooking sauerkraut, without telling them the story. You know, this is part of a Slavic area. We'll hear how her family escaped to America. And Martin Fletcher's making sense of what he's seen as a news correspondent in Tel Aviv by becoming a novelist. What is this book? Is it a love story or is it a thriller? And then I realized, actually, Israel is both, isn't it? It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Where do you think of as home? In just a bit, the host of the Lydia's Italy TV cooking show tells us how her family had to flee their home when the communist government of Yugoslavia took over and how they eventually became proud Italian-Americans and used their recipes to build a family business. For years, newsman Martin Fletcher has divided his time between Tel Aviv and New York. Now that he's retired from journalism, he's writing novels and basing his characters on what he's observed as a foreign correspondent. He joins us later in the hour to tell us about the family saga he's written set during the founding of today's Israel. With the holidays gearing up, it's a good time to think about what we can do to make it special for the children in our lives. Last Easter, when I was in Greece, I noticed how godparents made time for their godchildren as they dyed Easter eggs together. It got me thinking how, in America, we could do more to enhance the role of the extended family around special occasions, too. For a look at what it means to be named a child's godparent in Greece, we're joined by tour guide Maria Sulas. She's a godmother to three who takes her responsibilities very seriously. Maria, first of all, how did a British woman like yourself end up living in Athens? Well, when I was studying at college in England, in the northeast of England, I met a tall, dark, handsome Greek, and the rest is history. And you've lived in Greece? Lived in Greece since 1982. Can an English woman who marries into the Greek community be accepted after three decades? Oh, absolutely. I was accepted a lot earlier than three decades. Really? So you're part of the community? Yes. yes. And that's an intimate part because uh, apparently people have chosen you to be their child's godmother. That's right. So what's the role? You heard in my introduction what I described in in Easter. I was was so struck by that. Did that resonate with you? Very, very much so. Religion within the Greek community is, you won't find the churches full every Sunday, but it still plays a very, very important part in their lives. And it starts with the baptism. And the child is received into the Orthodox Church, receives its name, and is accepted as part of the Orthodox community. And basically, the role of the godparent is one of, like a sponsor, you're basically answering the questions that have been asked by the priest on behalf of this child. It's very, very important that the role is taken seriously because it's a lifelong. This is something that you can't just take on. As so the, the friend, the religious friend, is there at the baptism, sort of supporting the parents and being part of the ceremony and formally becoming the godparent of that child as he or she is baptized? The most important person, obviously, apart from the child, is the godparent because the parents are entrusting the child wow. to the godparent. Okay. It actually so it's more than in a Catholic or Protestant absolutely, situation because, because we have godparents also. 
But True. there's not the same reliance. No, on it. it stems back from early Christianity when Christians were being persecuted and often they would be killed and they would literally choose somebody to take care of their child to carry on this teaching of the Christian faith. So because this an is... early Christian was likely to be martyred. Correct, yeah. I didn't right. realize that's where godparents yeah. came yeah. from. Yeah. So you, you have three friends apparently that have chosen you to yeah, be right. their godmother. Who are these friends and why did um, they trust you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. It started with, it was actually my husband's best friend. When they got married, they chose us as their best man and woman, okay. their, their kubari. Uh-huh. Traditionally, it's the Kubari who become the godparents of the firstborn child. Uh And that was how it started. And even though I wasn't Christian Orthodox, both of the parents got special permission, basically, from the priest that I be allowed to participate. And you're Christian, but just not Greek Orthodox. Greek Orthodox. And the the Greek Orthodox priest said, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, he checked me out and made sure that (laughs) (laughs) that I was okay. So you've got three friends this way. So so this was it. So they were both Greeks. And then my second goddaughter, she, her mother is English and the father is Greek. They asked me to be godmother. Now Millie's grown up. She's uh, going to college and they now live in the UK. They come over to Greece and I love spending time with her. And the youngest godchild that I have is Nikos. He's just turned 12. He's the light of my life. Uh-huh. And his mother is Scottish and his father is Greek. The so, light of your light. When oh, you yeah. said that, it was the joy I felt when I witnessed the little girl running to her godmother and godfather in Nafplion when I was there for Easter recently. Just delight, just uh, love, just a, I like yeah. having a child. So you said yes three times. I did. It's a lot of work. I mean, I said yes because, you know, there's no follow-through. There's <laughs> my world. It's just, okay. And I mean, I'm embarrassed about that. But in Greece, you, you really, it's, a, yeah, it's an it's, ongoing responsibility. Uh, what's expected of a godmother in Greece? Well, once obviously the service is over, your main role traditionally would be to ensure that the child follows the Christian Orthodox faith, mm-hmm. that they attend the church services, that they attend communion. But it's more than that, really, for me. I like to take on the role with them as somebody that I can turn to if there's an issue going on with them that they maybe can't talk to their parents about. Okay. or So it's it's really to be like a confidant, somebody that they can turn to if they're whatever their problems are. Because parents have a certain role that, understandably, a child might not feel comfortable going exactly. to their parents. So the exactly. godmother or father can provide that. That's exactly. a beautiful thing. And then there's also, you know, you take on the role of things like you know, Christmas and Easter and name days, that being there for their school parties and school presentations and award ceremonies and swim meets and all that kind of thing. So. And just standing in at some of these Orthodox services, they last forever and you stand up. <laughs> That's I true. couldn't believe it. I That's was there true. at Easter and it was yeah. like... People have been here for 24 hours. Yeah. They come and go for yeah. a lunch or a dinner yeah. or something. A but... regular service on a Sunday will last for three hours. <laughs> so <this laughs> We is... don't stay for the duration, I hasten to add. <laughs> British-born Maria Soulis has called Greece home for more than three decades. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, she's telling us about the responsibilities that come with being designated a godmother for her friend's children. And also the Greek Orthodox traditions she helps to maintain in their lives. So um, you're doing a good job, it sounds like. I hope so. <laughs> does, does every Greek Orthodox child have a godparent? Yes, yes, you have to have a godma- a godparent. It can be a man or a woman, or you can have two, but you have to have a godparent. As uh, all Greek baptisms, there is a godparent. They're the focal point of what's going on. Now, when we think about Orthodox, doesn't that just mean almost literally unchanging? The right choice. The, the right, right choice. Yes, the right, yes. So yeah. if it was Orthodox in the year 800, it's Orthodox... Absolutely, today. today. 
Yes. And when you step into a church, Protestant or a Catholic church, it's had the Reformation, it's had Vatican II, it's had plenty of ways Correct. to kind of, quote, update. Yeah, it's evolved, whereas the Orthodox Orthodoxy, Church is... I often say that somebody from 800 years ago... They could step in. Absolutely, and, and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing. I think that's important for us as yeah. travelers to remember yeah. because we're welcome to step into a Greek Orthodox service. Mm-hmm. And we've got to remember... Don't judge it by being out of style or, or old-fashioned. It is, by definition, unchanging. Absolutely. And in a sense, that's probably one of the joys of orthodoxy. Yeah. You don't have to wonder, um, do we still do this or do we do that now and so on. That's right. The mysticism is something that I think when you step into an orthodox church, it just is all enveloping. An orthodox enveloping. priest once had a good time explaining to me the importance of the incense, creating this amazing oh, yes. environment. And yeah. he said he, he shapes the mood by which incense he chooses. He considers people who are not Greek Orthodox, he said something like, people who have not experienced the incense. There's some sort of a mystical presence created in an Orthodox service with the music, with the candles, with the icons, with the incense. It's a beautiful timelessness, I think. I think that's exactly right. I think it's the timelessness of it. I mean, as a child going into a Roman Catholic church, there was always incense at the most, the holiest part of the service. There was incense. And it's the same in a Greek Orthodox church. In fact, so much so that even in cemeteries, if you go to visit a grave in a Greek cemetery, you will take a little incense brick and light it on the the gravesite again to, as you rightly said, this aura of mysticism about it. So you've been the mother, in a religious sense, a godmother, of three young Greek children. In what way have you contributed to their understanding of their Orthodox faith? What challenges have you dealt with them to help them grow up with a a faith as strong as their parents hope they'll have? It's been difficult for Millie because obviously she's in the UK. Uh But with Nikos, every Easter, it's very important that the child go to, especially the resurrection service. And a few years ago, Nico announced that he wasn't going that he felt that he could get just as much from the whole thing by watching it on TV. So it had to be explained to him very clearly that, no, I don't care what you think, you're coming with me. When he gets there, he thoroughly enjoys it. You know, when you're standing there and all the children and everybody's holding their candles, you've been, you've seen what it's like. It's just amazing on that holy Saturday evening. And just to basically explain, this is, you know, the light of Christ. He's bringing the light of Christ into the world. And, and that beautiful candle, yeah. it, it actually travels and it's lit and it, it yeah. travels from, I understand, symbolically anyways, from the Holy Land uh, the, exactly to right, the, the Church Patriarch of the Holy in Athens well, and then right. to the priests and then to all the yeah. people. When I was witnessing the cute little girl running into the arms of her godparents, they gave her the candle That's right. that she would receive the light <laughs> on right. that uh, Easter Saturday yeah. evening. And then they have the kiss of, what is the kiss? Yeah, they, that's very traditional. It's when they say the Christ is risen at exactly 12 o'clock, you turn to the person and you kiss on each cheek. And then it was just, I was in the square, Napoli on the square was filled with people giving each other this beautiful (laughs) Easter kiss, and then plug your ears. Absolutely. You've got the fireworks, the church bells, the ship horns, it's pandemonium, yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, there are battle scars on the sides of churches (laughs) from the firecrackers that are blowing off, and I I would think that's a a real attraction for the the teenagers there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everybody goes home with their candles. The idea is that you bring the light of Christ into your home. And I remember the first time I went to Greece, Yanni's mother, she used to have like a a very, in the corner of the kitchen, a small icon uh, stand with pictures of saints that she was venerating. And in front of them stood the little eternally lit flame was set in oil that she had brought from the church every Holy Saturday Resurrection service. So, as a godmother, you're on duty. Uh, well, you're on duty all the time, but the events that you're on duty yeah. for, Easter, yeah. uh, 
Christmas, birthdays, name days. So, Maria, there's the birthday, and then there's the the name day. It's, in a sense, a second birthday, but it's what is the name day? A name day is the, the feast day of the saint after whom the child is named. On that day, they receive gifts, but it's also common that they will also take pastries and sweets into school for their friends it's, and adults as well. It's something to, that to adults celebrate that to day, celebrate to that day, the feast day of the saint after whom they were named. Well, congratulations, Maria, <laughs> for the impact you've had on three, I'm sure, adorable Greek young yeah. people. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Maria Sulis about the role of a Greek godmother. And Maria, in your role as a godmother to three children... What's an example of a moment, just a little intimate moment that made you very happy that that you rose to the call to be a Greek godmother? Well, when I was asked to be on the radio show, I told Nico, I said, come here, I want to ask you something. I said, I'm going to be on a radio show and I'm going to be talking about being your nonna, as I'm called. And I said, what should I say? He said, tell them that you're a really good nonna. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Well, Nona, congratulations and, <laughs> and best wishes. Thank you. Up next, the host of Public TV's Lydia's Italy tells us her family's story, how they had to escape Yugoslavia and eventually got the chance to make it in America. Plus, correspondent Martin Fletcher tells us how his latest novel explores the personality of Israel through the stories of the people who call it home. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We know Lydia Bastianich as the host of Lydia's Italy on public television and for her popular cookbooks, including Mastering the Art of Italian Cuisine. Now, in her new book, she shares her life story, coming to America in 1958 after escaping the communist regime in Yugoslavia. Her family came from Pula, near Venice. It's a Croatian town that's an Adriatic coastal resort today. It's in Istria. That's a region where Italian, Slavic, and Germanic worlds all mix it up, and it results in some very tasty culinary traditions. Lydia joins us now to share the story she tells in her new autobiography. It's called My American Dream. Lydia, thanks so much for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. My pleasure being with you, Rick. Now, you are actually... Croatian, right? But you ended up being no. a great Italian cook in the United States. No, I'm actually Italian. Italian. Uh, my maiden name is Maticchio. Okay. Uh, but, you know, over there, there's such a fine line because, you know, you, I speak Croatian. I go back now to Croatia and I feel comfortable. But uh, at home with my mother, I speak Italian. So are you saying, because I was understanding you, you grew up in Istria, so you're an Italian family in Istria? Exactly. We were uh, ethnic Italians living in Istria. Now, Istria has the Italian component. It has the Slavic component. It has some Germanic also from the Austrian-Hungarians. Okay. And uh, after World War II, actually 350,000 ethnic Italians, it was a big exodus, moved on into the world. Okay. Uh, we just happened to remain because I was born right on the cusp of the end of the war and the area being given to communist Yugoslavia. So my parents remained there, got caught behind the Iron Curtain. And the story is actually escaping communism and coming back into Italy and freedom. Did you feel that uh, Italian people in Croatia were discriminated against by the Croatian dominant uh, part of the culture? Well, you know, I was born there and I was there until 10 years of age. And we would go to school. School was Yugoslavian then, which is kind of the language is similar to Croatian. 
We could not speak Italian. Yes, we could not go to church. So, you know, the communist dogma ruled. So in that case, yes, we did feel kind of discriminated and put aside because, you know, my mother was an elementary school teacher, but we could not speak Italian. We had to speak at that time. It was Yugoslavian. You write a fascinating story about how you actually left Yugoslavia. Well, uh, you know, in, in 1956, uh, my mother and father decided that, you know, uh, it was time maybe to move on, to bring their children to some more freedom. At that time, we had relatives on both sides of the border. As the border went down, it literally divided families and homes. And so we wanted to go. My parents said that, you know, we wanted to go visit Sianina, who was in Trieste, actually, and that she was ill. They would not allow the whole family to go. They kept my father back as a hostage. So my mother, my brother, and I went to visit Sianina. And then two weeks later, my father had to escape, literally escape the border, the wired border. They chased, the dogs were chasing him, uh, shot, he was shot at, and he made it. He literally had to escape, and we reunited all in Trieste. And then in Trieste, you know, living with the family for a while, we could, but then we had no papers, so we had to enter a refugee camp. We went, uh, entered into the San Saba refugee camp. Uh, now San Saba is um, a museum in the outskirts of Trieste. Uh, But we lived in that camp, the refugee camp, for two years, awaiting an opportunity to move on. And in 1958, Dwight Eisenhower, was the president of the United States, opened immigration for people uh, escaping communism. And we were one of the first family that were were given the. So we were blessed and very happy. So you were what we would call an undocumented uh, refugee in Italy for two years. We were because we refused the, my parents refused the Yugoslavian uh, citizenship. Uh, The Yugoslav had erased any trace of any other uh, citizenship. So, you know, we were sort of without a citizenship. We could have reapplied for our Italian citizenship. That would have been a process. But, uh, you know, Italy was, was in the aftermath wasn't offering, you know, there was no. jobs were scarce. So my parents decided that they wanted to mi- migrate on. Canada was a possibility, certainly the States, uh, and uh, I think uh, Argentina was taking also immigrants at that time. Uh, but uh, thank God we made it to the United States. Think of the gumption your parents had to bring their family a better life and, and at great risk. Now, you spent two years in a refugee camp, uh, I guess a former prison camp, near Trieste. And just for our listeners, we're talking about the northeast corner of Italy, which rubs up against what was Yugoslavia. And the peninsula you were from in Yugoslavia is Istria, and that's part of Croatia. But you can just, you could get on a fast boat and in a couple of hours be in Venice. So you moved over to Trieste, which is a great Italian city right just across the border. What was life like in that camp for two years? Well, life in camp was was really, uh, you know, coming from even though under communism we were oppressed as a child. You know, I grew up with my grandmother. My mother put us in the little town with the grandma to be away from kind of the the, the city communist uh, pressure. And so growing up with grandma was wonderful. You know, she had all the courtyard's animals. She had the garden. I would help. I would help her milk the goats. We make ricotta, collect the eggs, make pasta with her. So I had wonderful memories, you Mm. know, being in nature, being with grandma, and then to be closed because we were literally closed. You know, we couldn't get out unless we had permission. As a young child, I, I felt really strapped. But not only that, 
is a camp. We all kind of slept. The bottom floor, I think, was single men, and then the middle floor was the families, and then on top floor were single women. And the whole floor was like a big loft, and it was divided uh, by plywood, uh, uh, even cardboard, or just old blankets, and made into cubicles. And uh, mm. we slept all in one little room, you know, with bunk wow. beds. You know, food uh, was, and thank God that it was provided for us. But, you know, mm-hmm. I had my little bowl and I had to go online for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lydia Bastianich. We know her from her Lydia's Italy TV show on public television. We know her from her cookbooks. Her new book is an autobiography. It's called My American Dream. You're so well-known and respected for your love of food. Talk a little bit about how some of your experience in a refugee camp near Venice as a child, as a little schoolgirl, would have given you some appreciation for food. A lot of Italian food is food from the poor culture, and you certainly had to scramble just to feed yourself then. What were some of the uh, influences that that period had that you look back on now? You know, as I as I look back, uh, Rick, every period of my life really made me who I am as far as my philosophy, my approach, my passion, and my love for food. First, I just described the beauty of growing food, of with grandma, of sharing, of making that beautiful table. Then the lack of food, the respect of not having food. You know, it made me think, you know, a lot of people are out there and they do not have food. You know, in retrospect, now I think I remember that and I remember how, how grateful I was and how I didn't, we didn't waste a small crumb of anything. And I remember mm. that my mother, uh, if you would work in the kitchen, you could get a little extra ration for your family. <laughs> and my mother would work in the yeah. kitchen so that we could get that extra ration. And while I was in, in camp in Italy also, then ultimately they allowed me to go out to school and thank God, I went in uh, to school in a convent. And again, to help to sort of subsidize a little bit my schooling, I got put into the kitchen of the convent. And there, you know, I got my first kind of look at a commercial kitchen, you know, cooking because the convent had a school and therefore cooking for the children. And I would peel potatoes, apples. I was young. I didn't know much, but it was great to be in this commercial kitchen. So I got the excitement of cooking for other people. And ultimately, you know, when I came to the United States, it was a whole new opportunity, a whole new world. Now, Rick, when we came here, we didn't have anybody here either. We were brought here by the Catholic Charities, and ultimately, after about three weeks, we were put in a hotel. They found a job for my father and and a little house for us in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, getting inserted into the American way of life. And, of course, going to school like everybody else, I began working in bakeries, in restaurants, so always related to food. Now, that is quite a story, and I'd love to hear a little more insight in as an immigrant in New York City, you could have struggled and, and gotten nowhere, but you struggled and were wildly successful. <laughs> I think, Rick, um, it was this, this excitement, this opportunity, you know. Here you, you come from some, an oppressed situation, and then you're given this gift of opportunity. And I was young, but, you know, uh, my parents knew that they were here for this. They instilled in us uh, the diligence of working hard, of studying, of going to, to school. They did this. And then you begin to realize that, you know, they did. They sacrificed so that we could have a better life. And I think my brother and I, it was just my brother and I, both really worked very hard, whether in school and whatever we did, to 
prove to our parents that they did not sacrifice in vain, shall we say. And I think that that drive, that desire, and then having the opportunities, I mean, there's no place like the United States. Uh, You know, you work hard, you commit yourself, you do it with a passion, and it happens. You know, listening to you talk and enjoying your wonderful accent and thinking of your upbringing and comparing it to so many of my friends and my family, we're all immigrants. Mm. And we've got all of this anxiety and, and discord today in our society on this issue of immigrants. How do you look at what's happening in the United States now, uh, given your your personal life story? Well, you know, uh, I can't help but, and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that I shared my story, because my story is a positive story. We were given a chance. We were given a chance to come to America. And we really rolled up our sleeves and still now really worked at it. And we made it happen. But also there was there's so much appreciation in this opportunity, at least for me, for my family. I want to share that, you know, that America is made of all this different ethnicity. is is like, a, you know, a mosaic, if you will. And each one bring their strength and their flavors. But then we're all unified as Americans, mm. which is wonderful. It's I mean, no other country has this. Are you personally thankful that you still have your Italian accent? Or do you, do you wish as a child you would have, uh, like, I have no Norwegian accent, and my grandparents came over from Norway, and my parents made sure that we talked like uh-huh. Americans, you know. From your point of view, is that a plus or a minus? You know, Rick, when you first come and you're a teenager, you can't wait to get rid of it. You can't wait to become American as soon as you could, you know. You want to shed all your, your, you know, being different. And then as you grow up and, 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 <laughs> and you go along, you really learn to appreciate who you really are, what your roots are, and the value of that. And certainly the Italian roots and all of, the, uh, you know, it's a wonderful part of me. And I, I couldn't think of trying to forget it now. But when I was a teenager, I had difficulties yeah. uh, with it, and I was trying to shed it. I think that's such an important revelation. And, and as you grow up, uh, you realize to treasure your heritage as well as embrace your Americanness. Lydia Bastianich shares the culinary traditions of her family's origins in Northeast Italy on her public TV show, It's Lydia's Italy. She's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we hear her family's story of escaping from communist Yugoslavia and ending up in the United States. Lydia's autobiography describes how she made a name for herself in her adopted homeland through her love of cooking. The book's called My American Dream, A Life of Love, Family, and Food. Lydia's website is lydiasitaly.com. Lydia, let's talk a little travel. Have you traveled a lot in your stomping grounds when when you were uh, a child in in Istria and Croatia and Italy? Oh, I've traveled a lot. I've been back when I was small. You couldn't. There was not much traveling done, but I went back over and over, and I went back to sort of regain. When I realized, you know, I had two of the greatest cultures behind me: born Italian, American now. My goal was to connect the two, my two worlds, mm-hmm. and I connected it with food. And in order to do that, and I still do, Rick, I still go to Italy three, four times a year. I visit the smallest towns. I want to know everything that's happening. What can I bring back? What have I missed along the way? So I traveled an awful lot around Italy and, for that matter, around the world. I love traveling. 
Well, it's just so fun to be able to take your love of travel and your love of uh, food and weave it all together and then share it through public broadcasting. Let's go all the way back to Istria for a moment, Lydia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Istria is, like you mentioned, it's where Germanic and Romantic or Italian and uh, Slavic culture come together. And it's sort of a battleground of cultures, and it's also a festival of cultures. I remember this peninsula, Istria, was really trendy a few years ago, and they were sort of framing it as like the Croatian Tuscany. Uh, They've got Mm -hmm. some good food traditions there. Is there anything about Istria, which is the peninsula where where you grew up uh, in the town of Pula, is there anything about that cuisine that that you enjoy spicing into your presentation uh, these days? Well, I use most of those recipes, uh, Rick. And those recipes, you know... Uh, You go around the coastlines, beautiful seafood, fresh. Whether you do a brodetto, polenta with pasta, risotto, absolutely. You go more into the center, even though it's a small peninsula, you have more of the hearty, you know, the the pork, the prosciutto, the polenta with game. uh, And and then that area, you know, was under the Austrian-Hungarian also empire for quite a few years. So there's a, a residue of, if you will, strudel and spetzels and, and, you know, I cook with sauerkraut, which is the Slavic part. I do stuffed peppers. I do stuffed cabbage, which is sarma, which is something that came up from Turkey into that area. And that's very part of that area. And I bring it forth in my cooking. And I think that's, you know, when I when I opened Felidia in 1981 and I became the chef, I decided I will cook regional. And a lot of what I cooked was also Istrian. And I, you know, cooked yotta. Now, uh, yotta is a pasta fagioli that instead of putting pasta in there, we put sauerkraut. That's very Slavic. And so, absolutely, I bring all of that with me in my cooking because I think that's to travel, to understand the culture, to understand the people. The fastest way to get in, the most kind of profound is at the table. At the table, you get a lot of information about that place. And when you have these different cultures, it's like a painter having more colors on his palette. Exactly, exactly, you know. Lydia, that is so fundamental to your passion for food. And and I just think good travel and, and good living is focusing on honesty, on the simplicity, on the conviviality, on the purity of it all. Uh, and that makes me wonder, can you just wrap up this conversation with sharing with us how your family, when you came to the United States as immigrants, made the dinner table a place of dignity and a place of hope and a place of celebration. I remember my mother, she's now 97 and she lives with me, and she's always been frugal because of what she went through. So when we first came, we couldn't contain ourselves going into a store, in a shopping, so many things available. And I remember that she went for chicken necks and chicken wings because they were the cheaper, but they were meat, and made a great soup put in some rice, and we would eat chicken soup from necks and from wings for months. Mm. But then it developed into regular vegetable soups. She went into some of the smoked pork, the klebasa, everybody got a little piece, and eventually to what today is our celebratory dish when family gets together is the roasted chicken with onions and potatoes and rosemary. So if the whole family is there, there's two kind of cast iron pans on the stove. The potatoes are in pieces. The chicken is in pieces. It becomes nice and caramelized, a big tossed salad next to it, and we just have a great family time. Now I think I understand the title of your book better, My American Dream, A Life of Love, Family, and Food. 
Lydia Bastianich, thanks so much for sharing and for joining us. Thank you, Rick. And uh, you and I should go to Friuli and Istria together. A huge smile just swept over my face, and I'm hungry at the same time. Let's do it. Anderson Cooper has called him the gold standard of war correspondence. Martin Fletcher joins us next to tell us about his new novel. It's based on what he's observed over decades of reporting from Israel and the Middle East. He examines the role of historical fiction and the tempestuous early years of Israel through the story of two brothers. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Martin Fletcher has watched the state of Israel up close for more than three decades. He was NBC's bureau chief in Tel Aviv for many years, and now that he's retired from that post, he files occasional special reports for NBC and PBS. But mostly, he's writing novels, using his experience in the Middle East to paint a human portrait of family, love, and the cost of war. The drama and chaos around the founding of Israel is the backdrop for Martin Fletcher's newest novel, Promised Land. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Thinking about this novel, which I love the way uh, Tom Brokaw says it picks up where Exodus left off, I was thinking it's an amazing setting for an amazing plot. Can you give us just a a quick overview of what was going on and the plot within all of that action? Yeah, well, I wanted to write a family saga, the struggle of of a family set to the struggle of Israel. You know, and sort of one story helps tell the other story. So the book is about two German Jewish boys who get separated by the war, One survives the Holocaust, one goes to America. They meet up again in Palestine and fall in love with the same woman, an Egyptian Jewish refugee. And the book is really about the the love and and, and hate, the intrigues, jealousies among the two families, the two brothers. But the struggle of Israel is the real drama of the book. There's the drama of the family, there's the drama of the country. And the book is set in the first 20 years of Israel. I just find that an extremely interesting, challenging period. You know, a young nation... You know, how do you, how do you found a nation? <laughs> I mean, how do you do that? So that's is. what the book is about. There's a sort of a romance to going, I mean, if you think about what happened with the, the building of Tel Aviv, basically in one lifetime, and then it finishes with the uh, Six Days War, doesn't it? Yeah, that's where I decided to end it. It's the first of a trilogy, by the way. So this book covers the years 48 till 67, and there's going to be two more books, each covering about 20 years of Israel's story and the story of the family. And I, and I ended it with the 67 War, First, because it's the obvious place to end it, given what happened. And also because Israel's winning that war and conquering the West Bank and the Gaza Strip really does set up the rest of Israel. You know, the first 20 years were just a struggle to survive. Right. And after they won the war in 67, it became a struggle of what kind of country will Israel be? Yeah. And, and so it was a natural break. That chapter is particularly thrilling because uh, a few days earlier, Israelis were hearing all of this propaganda and it was like they're going to be pushed into the sea and be breakfast for the fish. And then almost miraculously, the war is, is very quick and suddenly Israel feels much more confident when that dust settles. That's exactly right. And you know, something we lose sight of, I think, when we look back in time is that when we talk about the, the Six-Day War, it's all about Israel's stunning, rapid victory. But as you mentioned, the reality was right before the war, Israel really thought, the population really thought they could get wiped out at any moment. This was a real struggle of survival for the young Israeli nation, you know, which was only 19 years old at that time. The book really is a love story of the family, but it's also in a way a love story for the nation. It's a historic novel, so it's like you're there living through this actual real history. Well, I wanted to write it as authentically as I could. And I, so, I, you know, as a former journalist, 
I did a lot of research. The whole backdrop to the story of the family, and, you know, the story of Israel, everything's real. I mean, it's basically a bit of history that I wrote and weaved the story of the family through it. And I, I, I was always struggling between my, with myself. What is this book? Is it a love story or is it a thriller? And then I realized, actually, Israel is both, isn't it? The story of Israel is a love story and it's a thriller, so it really worked well. Plus, you're teaching history at the same time. How much liberty can you take when you know the history you're teaching is correct as far as you know it, but you want to make it interesting by amping up the romance and the drama in the love story? So that's a great question, and that is the challenge when you write historical fiction. So I wanted to keep it as authentic as possible, but always bearing in mind this is a story. The reader wants to read a good story, and Mm -hmm. I want to tell a good story. So I let the story take precedence uh, whenever it was about the family. But when I was writing about the nation, I wanted to make it as accurate as possible because, as you know, Israel is such a controversial subject. I didn't want people to say, oh, you got that wrong, you got that wrong. That's not true. (laughs) You know, so all the historical stuff is real. And the story of the family, of course, I made it as as interesting as I could. So you've got two goals. You want it to be a good story because if it's not a good story, nobody's going to read it. And then no matter how good your history is, it's kind of for naught. But it also needs to be carefully crafted history that uh, is balanced and and worth knowing. Uh, Did you see it that way? That is how I saw it. And I've got to tell you that my editor did not see it that way. (laughs) How did he see it? (laughs) No, because um, I wrote probably too much history in the book and I had to take a lot of it out because I was... You know, my editor felt that I was my goal of making it as accurate as possible was getting in the way of the story. And so we cut out probably about 100 pages, actually, of historical background, Ah. um, which I thought was necessary. But on rereading it now, I realize that the editor was right. I mean, it's a good, fast read. And I I may have weighed it down too much by trying to be too accurate. Of all people for a a novel set in the Holy Land to write a historical fiction, I can't imagine any better, better prepared. Uh, you love to do historical research before you write a novel, and you'd been doing it accidentally for decades before you set pen to paper for this project. No, that's right. I do feel that my whole career was preparation for writing books. My first two books were nonfiction, but I wanted to write novels. And I do feel that the experiences I had as a journalist all over the world in all kinds of difficult situations have helped me enormously in writing fiction, because when I have a complicated emotional moment, as I'm writing, I'm often able just to sort of close my eyes and disappear in my head and put myself in the position that I'm writing about because I've, in many cases I've been there. So in one sense, I'm writing from experience and then taking those experiences and giving it emotion and placing it within a story. So I, I do feel that my writing is authentic. I've got to say that. I like how you wrote, uh, this is just to quote something I read, I owe it to these people and all the others who I met on the worst day of their lives to write the truth even if it's fiction. Give us an example of that. Well, first of all, thank you. That's, that's, I have no idea when I said that. It's absolutely true. An example of that, well, let's stick with the book I'm writing now, Promised Land. It ends in 67, but the kind of feelings that I'm writing about are universal and eternal. So, for instance, there was, I was in, with one family near Tel Aviv. The girl and the father were telling me their story. The girl's three friends went to Tel Aviv. And the father wouldn't let her go with her friends. He said, no, I'm afraid there's too many suicide bombers around. Don't go. You can't go. So she was a 15-year-old girl. They had a big screaming row at home. The father wouldn't let her go with her friends. And then her friends went, and all three were killed in a suicide bomb. And I met them the, the next day. Mm. And I, I so identified with the father, and I could see the, you know, the mixed emotions of the girl you know, who, who was so angry with her father, yet he saved, probably saved her life. And then they had to bury her three friends. I mean, when she, they were telling me the story, I actually had to look away because I had tears in my eyes, mm. you know, as a father. When you heard that, did you, I mean, in retrospect, 
did you want to incorporate that into a novel so people could could feel their pain? Not really, no. But as I'm writing fiction now, this was some years ago, as I'm writing fiction now, I've got hundreds of those kinds of stories and those moments impose themselves on, on my writing. You know, I mean, I'm writing about something and I suddenly mm-hmm. remember an emotion that I or somebody that I met along the way and I'm able to write, you know, somehow write their story. I mean, I do want people to read this book and think, wow, that's an incredible story, an incredible country, and it sets the scene for what's happening there today. Foreign correspondent Martin Fletcher has covered war, international politics, and conflict for decades, from his post in Tel Aviv, and when major news was breaking out in such hotspots as Afghanistan, Cambodia, and Iran, he'd be there. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. After retiring from TV news, Martin's been writing novels based largely on what he's seen in his travels. His latest is called Promised Land, and it's set in the newly established modern state of Israel. Martin's website is martinfletcher.net. Martin, when I read about your account of the days leading up to the Six-Day War, which we were uh, talking about earlier, the account was so vivid. People really feared that there was no escape for this. Were you actually there, or how did you know, even if it's fiction, you can't just dream up that stuff. How were you able to capture that amazing emotional and and fear-filled moment. Thank you for describing it in that way. Um, Research. I mean, I wasn't there at that time. In fact, my first visit to Israel ever was in the year after to go go work on a kibbutz, as many people did. No, it was all research and talking to people who were there at the time. Martin, if somebody is inspired by reading your book, Promised Land, and they want to go to Israel and be inspired as you were about the um, two decades following uh, the establishment of modern Israel until the Six Days War... What's a travel tip you'd give people? Where would you go to understand just the reality of the people of Israel during this period? I think to understand, you've got to realize that when Israel was founded in 48, there was only eight, a population of 800,000 people. In 67, when my book ends, the population was 2.7 million. So the population of Israel increased threefold, 300% in 19 years. Hmm. So that's like American population going from 300 million to 900 million in 20 years. I mean, it's a, insane. When you think about all the houses that had to be built and the schools and the creation of jobs and all the rest of it. So where do you see that today? I think Tel Aviv's a good place to start because Tel Aviv still has some really crummy areas that were built in the 50s. And yet they're juxtaposed with what is today an incredibly modern, exciting, cosmopolitan city. So I think to see the differences, Tel Aviv would be great. But then Jerusalem, you could probably say the same about Jerusalem. I mean, the wonderful thing about Israel is it's so small. So you can see this incredible country with so many varieties of, of tourism in, oh, yeah. in a week or 10 days. And it's laced by great freeways, so you can get around in a hurry. I found going up to the Golan Heights and being able to look down on the Sea of Galilee let me understand uh, what it would be like to be living at the receiving end of uh, the people who had the high ground. And that would have been yeah. a, a way to empathize with the, a nation that, that really didn't have the high ground and wanted to capture the high ground, as Israel did in the Six Days War. No, that's quite right. And as a matter of fact, my wife is Israeli, and she grew up on a kibbutz at the foot of the Golan Heights, right. more or less. When she was a child, she lived two years in the bomb shelter. Yeah. So to walk in those kibbutzes, to walk through those fields down on the, on the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee, and then to go up and stand on top of the pillboxes on top of the Golan Heights and look down— Nothing gives you the, the appreciation of that other than being there, like visiting it now with the curiosity for the, for the story. No, that's right. Did you go to that? There's one uh, gun emplacement where they left the Syrian guns yeah, in I did, position and, it, and you it can was just, o- overlooking the lake, very Galilee. Powerful, it's amazing. Very powerful. 
Foreign correspondent Martin Fletcher has covered war, international politics, and conflict for decades from his post in Tel Aviv. And when major news was breaking out in such hot spots as Afghanistan, Cambodia, and Iran, he was there. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. After retiring from TV news, Martin's been writing historical fiction based largely on what he's seen. His latest is called Promised Land, and it's set in the newly established modern state of Israel. His website is martinfletcher.net. Now, Martin, when you read through the novel, there's very little mention of Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians. It's immersed in the whole Israeli perspective. Of course, during this exciting 20 years for Israel, every time Israel would have its national celebration day, Palestine would celebrate the Day of Catastrophe. Uh, And there's the other perspective. You're a Jewish writer, and this kind of shows the Jewish perspective What about uh, the whole ignored Palestinian reality during this 20-year period? Well, Rick, I I did that deliberately. I thought long and hard about whether to include the Palestinian, the Israeli-Arab view in the book. And also, by the way, there's almost no mention of Orthodox Jews. Ah. And the reason I left them both out was that in that period, I wanted to remain loyal to the period. And in that period, the Arabs and Orthodox Jews played almost no role in the story of Israel. Their role really began, the Arab role, in 67, when mm-hmm. they suddenly became you know, a, a very important part of the story. And in, my, in the next book of the trilogy, their role will be reflected because there was a real Arab role. But I didn't mention them much at the beginning in the first book, Promised Land, simply because they weren't really that relevant to the story of Israel in the period I was writing about. I thought there'd be some flack, by the way, but I just thought that was the, that was the real thing to do. It would be interesting when you consider your trilogy to find a, a writer you respect that has an empathy for the Palestinian end of things, to look at this same amazing 20-year period from that end of things, wouldn't that be a fascinating story also? Yeah, no, I think it would be fascinating, but it just simply wasn't part of my book. Right. Um, the number of Arabs in Israel at that time was about 18% of the population, and it's, it still is about that. So they still have the same population ratio, mm-hmm. but they were so suppressed by the new country of Israel, they, they, you know, they, they needed permission, they needed papers to leave their village. Right. The way of controlling the Arabs at the time was through the Secret Service. And if an Arab wanted something like travel papers or to study in an Israeli town, they would normally have to go to the Shin Bet, the Secret Service, get permission. And then that desire by the Arab would then be used against them to pressure mm. them to yeah. work for the Secret Service. So it was a very difficult time. And from an Arab point of view, yeah, it's a horrible story, but it's not part of my story for the right. first book. Now, you personally did not live through the Holocaust, but uh, it was clearly a part of your life. How did the whole Holocaust experience influence you and impact your family? Well, greatly. My, my mother and her sister survived, and my father and his niece survived. And that's all out of two large families. I mean, everybody else was killed in the Holocaust. So that was always, and I was born in 47, so that was always a heavy part of our family life. My father had a, had a terrific memory. So we were always lighting memorial candles for auntie this or grandfather that who died here or died there. They were all murdered. So that certainly affected me as a journalist and as a writer and as a person, of course. During the time that your book was set, the awareness of World War II and the Holocaust and and that whole tumultuous age must have been, it's almost hard for us to imagine it today, and that's the value of a book like this. I mean, back then, America was flooded with GIs. Germany's beer halls were filled with one-legged veterans with PTSD. And Israel, of course, was inhabited literally with survivors of, of the concentration camps. We're right now living through the passing of the generation that lived through the Holocaust. Was one of the 
the hopes of your book was to help keep those memories alive as the living memory passes away. In a sense. I mean, I want the whole book to be read, but I, w- I wanted to make the story of early story of Israel accessible to people who wouldn't normally read about it. So I wanted to write a good thriller, a good love story. And that was the goal. But it's an interesting question you asked, because actually the idea of this book came from Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, mm-hmm. in which he wrote about ah. his father's generation, the Depression and the Second World War and Korea and building America into a great nation. And I said to Tom, you know, he's a friend of mine from NBC, I think the greatest generation is the Jewish generation that survived Europe. They grew up in the Depression. They survived anti-Semitism in Germany and Austria and everywhere else. They survived the Holocaust. They went into the displaced people's camps after the Second World War. Many of them made their way illegally into Palestine where they arrived. Then they fought the War of Independence in 48. They fought wars in 56 and 67. They built Israel into what it is. That's also an extraordinary generation. And that's actually, I began writing a, a non-fiction book on what I called the Jewish greatest generation and then realized halfway through my research, which is why it is so well-researched, that actually I wanted to turn it into a novel. And it's so interesting to think, we always tend to study, you know, the lead-up to the war and the war, but what you have tackled is the two decades after that. Whether it's uh, the heroes or the villains, it's still, it's, a, it's an amazing time. I mean, I just can imagine also Europe and Germany recovering from the war and the impact it had there, of course, what happened in the Holy Land. I would imagine similar uh, trauma was being uh, recovered from in, in the Soviet Union. This is such an important uh, slice of history that I think tends to be overlooked. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Thank you. And I, part of the reason I sort of cottoned on to this period, because my, my first two novels were basically set in the same period, one in England and one in Germany, was that most of the literature of the period was about the, the build-up to the war, the mm-hmm. Second World War, or stories from the war itself. But what happened immediately afterwards? Uh, how did Europe, how did anybody pick up the pieces? That's what my fiction has been about. And I think it comes from my work as a journalist, you know, where I would arrive, as, as you mentioned earlier, I said I would meet people on the worst day of their lives. And what I always wondered was, well, what do you do tomorrow? You know, here we are. We're going to go away. We'll leave you to your tragedy. And how do you get on with the rest of your life? That was always a question I had as a journalist. And that's what has preoccupied me as a writer of fiction. And part of our reality is your book is bookended by two wars. Yeah, uh, that's right. Two wars and two love stories. I was very touched by the fact that uh, there's as many people in Israel now as were killed in the Holocaust. And at the same time, the living memory of the Holocaust is going away. I think that's a real crisis in Israel when people forget they don't have anybody that really lived through it around them anymore. Yeah, no, that's right. I was in Israel when the population of Israel passed 6 million. They announced the population of Israel, the Jewish population of Israel, is 6 million. Right. And I said to my son, imagine that every single person in this country lies on the ground, they're dead. That's how many were killed in the Holocaust. Yeah, and imagine people didn't remember it. And we need to remember. That is the cry of the the survivors of the Holocaust, that's for sure. And it's a, a cry well worth heeding. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Martin Fletcher. His new novel is Promised Land, a novel of Israel. Congratulations on this, and uh, thank you for for giving us all a better insight into uh, a fascinating slice of history. Thank you, Rick. Thanks. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe. 
one small group at a time. Next year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.